Lord, we, we ask your mercy because that's all we can ask for. Uh, Lord, we're an, a nation that has rejected you and turned from you, and we're reaping that which we've sown. And God, we have no foundation upon which to stand because we've removed you. And we can't even define an enemy because we believe that man is innately good as we teach our children. And yet your word says that we're sinners. And the only hope for us is to be saved by grace. And it's, it's your truth that is what sustains the world that would be subject to chaos and destruction. And yet, Lord... We thank you for your mercy that here we gather, we're still able to open the word and not in fear of anyone coming to take away the Bible. But Lord, those, those liberties are rapidly evaporating. And so God, I pray your protection upon the fellowship, upon our people, upon the state and the nation. And Lord, help us to be men and women who would establish truth in our generation. Lord, whatever that takes and whatever that looks like. And I I pray that the church would wake up and that we wouldn't just be pietistic and express platitudes from the pulpit, a lot of peas, but Lord, that we would engage and declare that there is a God in heaven and he judges the affairs of men and we're called to give an account to him. And if we don't stand for righteousness, your word declares that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And so, God, please help us. Have mercy on us. Open our eyes. Remove the scales. Bring us to a place of repentance. Let us cry out to you. And so, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I forgot one thing. Lord, forgive me, but the comfort upon the families. Lord, the misery that's going on in San Bernardino and even the town I lived in in Redlands and all that they're having to process and the officers that had to respond and the carnage that they witnessed. Please, God, we pray your grace upon that entire misery and that you're the God of comfort. And I pray in the midst of that misery that they would see you and they would experience that peace that surpasses all understanding in the midst of their misery. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, on, a, on a lighter note, actually, it's not even a lighter note, but on a better note, a lot of you know that we're doing these American Renewal Projects around the country. <clears throat> um. God's given David Lane a vision and Cindy, and God's been abundantly blessing this endeavor and uh, going into states around the country and uh, what they're called American Renewal Projects. And, um, and then following that, we do a thing called Issachar Training. And it all stemmed from a picture God gave David after I ran for the state assembly that if a thousand pastors in the United States ran for office and they did half as well as we did, there'd be 300,000 new volunteers in this movement to to have an influence of Christ in the civic arena. And to date, the number varies depending on the, 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 the statistics we look at. I would say it's anywhere between the high 300s to the low 500s of pastors who have committed to running for office. And uh, not just pastors, but their congregants. And one of the Issachar trainings that we did, the very first one we did, was in Louisiana, and it was the worst that we had done. Uh, it, it, there, there was a lot of um, st- structural problems with it, but the people that came were so hungry to make a difference. And two of the attendees, Beryl Amity and Rick Edmonds, were uh, both in those Issachar training events. And both were so moved that they decided to run for the state assembly in Louisiana. And last Tuesday, they won. So 
Amen. I got a call from a man named Dan. He's a pastor in Mesquite, Texas. And I said, Dan, how big is your, your town? He says, 144,000. I said, it's about a big, as big as um, Thousand Oaks. He says, I'm thinking of running for council. Uh, I was told to call you and get some insight. And he goes, now, when I go door to door, should I preach the gospel door to door? And I said, if you want to lose. <laughs> I said, you're running for office. Now, if you want to run for pastor of the town, then go door to door. But but the idea is to be all things to all men that you might win some. You're running to be their representative. They didn't ask you to be their pastor. And um, and you're interviewing for a job. And, and they want to size you up and see what you're what you're made of. And we had a really neat conversation, and he's excited about running. And he's, he's run once but lost, barely lost, and he really feels as though the Lord's calling him. And David, you've received countless phone calls, the same kind of folks doing that. So there's a fire that started in this whole congregation, and God's doing some neat things. So one more thing I want to share with you, and this is, um, this is a, a member of our congregation um, who uh, was so burdened by what had occurred in... Um, let me find it. I'm sorry. I was so burdened by what had occurred in Colorado um, with the shooting at the Planned Parenthood. And with the incendiary device that was put in the broken window of the Planned Parenthood here locally, and then the letter to the editor that tried to implicate me in some capacity to being responsible for that, um, they assumed that there's probably going to be letters in this next aid corn issue, and so they preempted it with this letter. And this is this is how you write the narrative for a culture, and this is what we're trying to call Christians to do. Uh, you don't you don't sit back and let someone else write the narrative. God has commanded us to go into all the world, make disciples. Disciples mean train them. That means contend, as we've studied in the Book of Acts, for Sergius Paulus, the proconsul of Cyprus. Remember, they were contending for his heart and his soul. Um, and he was the ruling governor of the island of Cyprus under Roman rule. So we're contending for the minds of people. And so this, this um, member of our congregation uh, wrote this letter to the editor, and this is what they wrote. We are Garrett Swayze, a pro-life response to the shooting at the Colorado Planned Parenthood. Last week, a lunatic named Robert Deere went on a mini-shooting spree in a Colorado Planned Parenthood abortion clinic, tragically killing three people, including a heroic pro-life Christian police officer who was also a pastor named Garrett Swayze. No abortion workers died. However, due to the fact that 900 preborn infants are killed by Planned Parenthood every day in America, we may surmise at least several precious unborn children did indeed lose their lives, albeit with much less ordeal, at that facility before the chaos broke out. Many have used this as an opportunity to blame the pro-life movement for the so-called anti-abortion terrorists or terrorism. For those objective, uh, for those objective, however, oh, excuse me, so-called anti-abortion terrorism. For those objective, however, and are looking for a prototype for the pro-life movement in this awful situation, look no further than Officer Garrett Swayze, not Robert Deere. Let this sink in. Officer Swayze believed with his all his soul that what goes on in Planned Parenthood is nothing less than full-scale infanticide. Yet he died protecting the lives of those he believes are responsible for the brutal, brutal murder of tiny babies. Like Swayze, half of, the Ameri- half of America is pro-life. That means half of our population, our nation's population, believes abortion murders a baby. Yet in the past 40 years, only eight abortionists have been killed by alleged anti-abortion activists. If the pro-life movement was in any manner violent, there would be a great deal more than eight dead abortionists over the f- past four decades to show for it. 
Testifying to the peaceful nature of the pro-life movement, abortionists can freely operate and live their lives in the midst of a society in which half the members believe them to be the killers of babies with a greater chance of being killed by a giant squid than an abortion terrorist. Represented well by the late great officer Garrett Swayze, the pro-life movement stands to the utmost for life, even the lives of those most closely complicit in what we see as the murder of almost 60 million of our precious little fellow countrymen since the passage of Roe v. Wade in 1973. We are not Robert Deere. We are Garrett Swayze. I thought that was a great article. A lot of you hear that and you cringe. You struggle. Because somehow we think the gospel is separated from contending for the minds of the populace and to set the narrative. And in doing something like this, there is going to be contention. But Jesus said it didn't come to bring peace but a sword. We're contending for something very precious and that's called truth. And let me just share with you, because tonight the message out of Acts chapter 13 is going to be on truth. But before I have you open the word, I want to read some scriptures to you. First of all, I want you to know that 1,153 times in the Bible, the phrase, the word of God is used. The word of God is used. Now, this being the case, I want to share with you what John 17, 17 says. God says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Did you hear that? Hello? Psalm 119, verse 160. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. You think about this, and we're called to rightly divide the word of truth. Psalm 138, verse 2. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. Above all your name. The idea is God is commanding us to contend for truth. And what you're going to see in the passage of Scripture momentarily is that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas are doing as they're in Antioch and Pisidia. So let's open up to Acts chapter 13 for the study of the word. The Holy Spirit sent out Paul and Barnabas. As we studied last week, John Mark bailed on them. We took a study of the life of John Mark. And tonight we're going to see as Paul and Barnabas move on to uh, Antioch and Pisidia without John Mark. And what occurs? Now, remember, it's a mountainous region. It's precarious. It's not the Antioch where Paul was. It's a different Antioch. Actually, Paul will write of <clears throat> this Antioch in Second Timothy, the last epistle, the pastoral epistle he would write before his death. He would, he would say in that passage in chapter 3, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of all of them the Lord delivered me. And then he says this in the closing of that passage. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you think good government is good work? Amen. Do you think being a, an honorable doctor is good work? 
an honorable producer in Hollywood? Is there anywhere where you can't do good work? Is there anywhere where doing good work wouldn't have an effectual change in a culture? But there is places, there are places, excuse me, there are places that you can attempt to do good work where you're going to have a pushback and contention, and it'll be the toughest. And that's where Christians want to remove themselves because it's too difficult. And so they just say, well, I don't do that. We don't have that luxury. We don't have that luxury. God has called us to go into all the world and make disciples of all men in every fashion of the world. So we'll pick up at verse 13. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John departed from them, returning to Jerusalem. We studied that last week. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Paul would always find commonality in the synagogues. And and let's let's refresh ourselves. Paul was trained under Gamaliel, Gamaliel, who was the foremost rabbi of the time. Paul was um, a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. Um, Because he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he was obviously married. His wife left him, probably because he converted to Christ. He's had a minimum of 10 years in the wilderness after his Damascus conversion. He's now getting an opportunity to preach the gospel. He comes into this town on the Sabbath day, and he sits down. Now, when he sits down, he's probably retained, and this is an assumption on my part, but scholars believe that he's retained the uh, garment of of a Sadducee and a Pharisee because he had qualified in that college. It would almost be as though he's wearing, have you ever seen when um, a pastor who has uh, a doctorate has three stripes on his vestige, on his robe? And and in certain denominations, Presbyterian, if you have a master's degree, you're allowed to raise one hand giving the benediction. And if you have a doctor degree, you can raise both hands in giving the benediction. Uh, I can't raise either. And so <clears throat> I'm close, though. And, and so uh, here, Paul probably has the garb of a Pharisee or a Sanhedrin, which is typical if you were going into a synagogue. As a learned man, you would wear that, that garment to let everyone know your education. And what he's basically declaring is, um, I have a doctorate. Uh, and, and as we know, Paul spoke multiple languages, um, highly educated, a legal mind. And so he sits down in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. This is one of the reasons why scholars believe he was wearing this outfit because they came to him and said, we have a prestigious man in our presence. Would you please say a few words to the congregation? Um, you know, if, if Greg Laurie came in and I, I noticed him, I, I'd say, Pastor Greg, uh, please, I, we would love to have you come and share. Um, you know, Catherine's here. Catherine comes, she didn't have anything to say. But I said, you know, come in. I'm just kidding. But, but if somebody of prestige is in the room, you would, you would would acknowledge that. If a military officer came in, you had a four-star admiral or a general coming in, obviously we'd want to know what prestige has entered into the, the room, and we'd, we'd want to hear some words about what they're involved in. And so they turned to Paul and also Barnabas, uh, knowing that these two men are together, and they obviously have a party that's traveling with them, and they say, do you have any word of exhortation to the people? Please say on. So you can imagine, Paul, do you have anything to say? And Paul says, hmm, Yeah. You know, it's it. They open a door and he drives a Mack truck through it. That's the picture I have. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hands. So he's obviously gifted in what they call hermeneutics, which is the ability to speak, 
when you use your hands, it's animated, keeps people's attention, especially on a Wednesday night when they're completely exhausted and they're nodding off and you can kind of point in that direction to let them know that you see them sleeping. Uh, so Paul, uh, and hermeneutics is, is the mythical creature, Hermes, that communicated between the gods and man. It's just a way to take uh, heavenly truths and communicate them to man. And, and it's, it's a way to speak. It's a way to engage a, a, a congregation. So Paul motions with his hands, and he says, Men of Israel, you who fear God. Now, what does the Bible say about the fear of the Lord? It's the beginning of wisdom. And they know that. And so when he says, you who fear God, now he's about to address to them wisdom. And their ears perk up, and they're prepared. They've all studied Psalm 119. It was required of any Jewish child to have that memorized by the age of 13. It's, a, it's an acrostic of the of the Hebrew uh, alphabet, um, hundreds of verses contained in Psalm 119, and it's to be completely memorized. And the entirety of Psalm 119 deals with the Word of God and the truth of the Word of God. And so Paul says, You who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. Let's stop for a minute. What's Paul doing here? It, it's, it's a question seeking an answer. It wasn't rhetorical. What's, what's Paul doing here? Recounting history. We don't study history anymore. We don't know how we came about this representative form of government. We don't know how we came about a nation that has liberty and license and a balance. We've lost that. And because of our ignorance, it's being taken from us. If you don't know what you have, you don't know the worth and the value of it, and you're willing to give it away. And you'll give it away for the pittance promise of, of protection or peace and security. And so every liberty is given away for the hope of security. We end up with neither. Because of our ignorance, we don't know what it is we're giving away. It's like somebody going into a garage sale and seeing a, you know, a Tiffany lamp and the person just thinks it's some old cheesy lamp. It doesn't fit in my house. Another person understands history and understands the value of that item and walks away with a $50,000 lamp that they paid 25 cents for. We're giving away jewels. We're giving away precious, precious jewels that were fought for. We have no idea about that. And Paul's recounting a history that every single Jewish person would understand. One of the reasons why you have the Seder meal, which is the longest-running family meal in the history of, of the world, is because that meal tells the, the children of Israel of their deliverance out of Egypt and the Passover lamb. And so here, Paul is reciting this history to remind them of what was given to them. You were once in bondage, you've been set free. And as we see the Titler cycle, it goes from bondage to, uh, from, from slavery, bondage to slavery, slavery to freedom, freedom to abundance, abundance to apathy, apathy to bondage. And, and we're in that stage where we've had this, this abundance and this, this freedom, and now we have apathy, and that apathy is now coming to a place of, of bondage. And then that bondage will then place us into slavery. A nation big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take everything you have. And so we're, we're giving away all of this, not understanding our history, and Paul's reminding them. He says in verse 19, uh, excuse me, verse 18, 
Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also, to whom he gave testimony and said, I have found David, a son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. By the way, soteriology, soter, means savior. This is, this is a depiction of the gospel the soteriology, that, that, that we have a Savior, and we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is declaring that there is a Messiah who is ordained through the history of Israel that, that they are to respond to, that God, through the beginning of time, had orchestrated that a Savior would come into the world through the seed of David. He's laying this case out, and then he declares to them something that probably shocked them. He said, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up a Savior, And then he pauses with his hermeneutical gesture. He pauses a savior. And they're wondering and they're pondering a savior. We're all drowning. We're all afraid. When will, when will San Bernardino travel North? When's it going to happen tonight? There's members of our congregation that were so concerned having background in policing that they came here tonight just to be prepared. Make sure that none of you are in danger. And they understand what we're facing. They see it day in and day out. And so in this midst, he, he brings him to this point. He says, God's brought a savior and he pauses. And then he says a word that divides the room. It's, it's like you turn a light on in a barn at night and the rats scurry, but the birds sing. The room divides the minute he says it. Because Jesus' name brings division. He says a savior. Jesus. Oh. Ooh. Mm. Uh-huh. Mm. Oh. It all comes out. He says, after John had first preached, before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to loose. John was renowned in the, in the Jewish world. John the Baptist was renowned and he was, he was, people were going to him in the wilderness at great expense to themselves and they knew of him. And when he had declared Jesus to be the Messiah, and as we know, John was Jesus's cousin and he was in the womb of Elizabeth when Mary was pregnant with Jesus and John leapt in the womb. And here we see that John declares him to be the Messiah of whose sandals I am not worthy to loose. All these men had already known of John. And so the room is moved. And then this is where the text, six times until the conclusion of chapter 13, six times you see this statement, the word of God. Verse 26, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, those among you who fear God, to you, the word of this salvation has been sent, the word. Word. Logos, word. 
I'm communicating to you with words. Gravity doesn't exist. Is that true? Is that true? Words left my mouth that weren't true. Your mind was filled with something that wasn't true. The discernment declared by natural law that it is. Gravity is real. Regardless of what I said, I'm trying to get you to avoid seeing the reality so that I can present to you the fantasy. Gravity doesn't exist. As a matter of fact, if I can get the whole room to believe that gravity doesn't exist, that's how we'll overcome it. Will that ever work? No. No. Stay with me, folks. Paul says in verse 27, For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they have found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Every one of them had heard this. The news had spread through the Roman Empire. They were well aware of the news. And here's Paul declaring it. This is Paul trained under Gamaliel. This is Paul a Sanhedrin. This is Paul a Pharisee. This is Paul with an intellect that is so sharp and a wit that can just dissolve you. And he's declaring it. And they're, they're mesmerized. And the room is divided. Make no mistake. But nobody wants to contend with him. You know why? Because he's studied to show himself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He can contend in this arena because he's prepared for every good work, as he would write in 2 Timothy 3. And this is a good work. He's contending for the government in this, this city hall of Pisidia, Antioch. And he's fighting. And he's doing it with clear logic and he's laying out a historical basis and a case for it. And he's declaring the word of God, which is an absolute. God's word endures forever. Your word is truth. Every one of them knew Psalm 119. They knew every aspect of Psalm 119. And so based on this, they're they're left with what do we do with these facts? Christianity isn't rejected because of the facts. Christianity is rejected because people love their sin more than they love God. And they're willing to say gravity doesn't exist and make a farce that they're going to get everybody to believe. And if we can just educate all of our children, somehow we're going to overcome the restraints of this deity that we declare doesn't exist, but we're still fighting him. How do you fight someone who doesn't exist? How do you fight someone who doesn't exist? And he was seen for many days, and those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings. This is good news, Ulongelion in the Greek. That promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He, spoke, he has spoken thus. I will give you the sure mercies of David. He's quoting out of the Old Testament. He says, therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. So it wasn't about David. It was about the Messiah. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. 
Therefore, let it be known to you, and this is where we're going to see it again. Pay attention. Listen for the word of God. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. This is the central theme of the gospel right here. The central theme of the gospel. And the central theme of the gospel, you ready? The center of the word of God is the forgiveness of God. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful for that. Because I got a lot of things that I need forgiveness for. And the only, I have two options. I have two options. The guilt that I carry for the things that I've done and continue to do, even though I don't want to do them, I do them. Amen? I have two options. I can either, three options. I can either take medications and make myself a zombie so I don't have to think about it anymore. Or I can receive that forgiveness and have a transformed life. Or I can rewrite it and say, I don't feel guilty because there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. I'm going to write the rules. It's not, it's, not, it's not murder, it's a choice. It's not sexual deviance, it's a lifestyle. It's not adultery, it's an affair. We just rewrite it. And to rewrite it, we have to remove God. I, I, they're doing an article in Reuters, and, and they wanted to take a picture of me. I don't know what the article, I, I know what the article will be, but I don't know to the extent or even if it will be published. But apparently it was important because they sent out a photographer to try to make me look good, which is an enormous task. And the man showed up and he said, I've read about you. I said, you have? He said, yeah. He says, you're conservative, aren't you? Oh, I said, yeah, yeah, I am. You're Christian. I said, yep, I'm Christian, I'm pastor. Hmm. He says, well, I'm, I'm just going to tell you right out. I'm progressive. I don't, I don't believe in God. I said, okay. Are you a good photographer? And, and he was a really nice guy, and we had a great conversation. And he was telling me that, that he waited late in life before he had his daughters. He has twin daughters. I said, where do they go to school? He said, oh, they go to a Catholic school. I mean, I contend with them with all that Catholic crap that comes home every day. I said, but is it a good education? He says, yeah, it's a great education. They're getting a great education. They're smart girls. He said, and I said, uh, you're progressive. He said, you know, so you believe in bigger government? He says, yeah, but there's a balance because, you know, I believe in global warming and I believe that we're reducing the use of fossil fuels and, and, and yet I, I believe in capitalism, but capitalism, you know, people have greed and that's going to stay in check. So I believe in regulations. I don't believe in deregulation. I said, well, I, I believe in regulating the human soul. And he said, well, I don't know what that, but so we're going back and forth and he says, he says, I believe in capitalism, but I, I, I believe in big government, and I believe in regulation. And he starts laying all this out. He says, California's doing great. I said, is it really? I said, we used to have the best schools, and you just told me that you have your kids in private schools. Why don't you have them in the California school system? And why are you rejecting the God of the people who have established a system of education that you accept and honor, but reject the God in, in the foundation of what they're doing? that they're teaching them right and wrong. 
And you talk about capitalism and greed, and I say that that's innate to every human being, but you, as a progressive, believe that every man is innately good. And yet you believe a government needs to regulate that. Why would we need to regulate if we're innately good? And upon which do you base your assumptions of good and evil? Is it a rolling target or a moving target? And we just had this conversation back and forth, and, and he was left kind of pondering it. And, and, he, and he said, you know, I don't believe the Bible. I said, have you ever read it? And he said, no. I said, well, you know, you're telling me to, to not, you know, do all the bylines on Fox News, which I, I don't necessarily even listen to, yet you've already labeled me. And, and I'm giving you thoughts that are coming from me that I own, and, and you're spouting out a statement of a scripture you've never read based on what someone else said about the scripture. I think you need to read the book of John and find out what Jesus has to say about the world and about who he is. And we had a great conversation, and it was touching, and he was a lovely man. But you're contending for the souls of people, even a Reuters photographer. And this is what Paul's saying. And, and I looked at him and I said, he goes, yeah, I was a dope smoker and I, you know, I struggle with this. I struggle with that. My, parent, my in-laws are super conservative. They drive me crazy. And my dad's an alcoholic. And I said, have you ever struggled? And he goes, yeah, I have. And I said, who forgives you? And do you ever ask forgiveness from your wife when you go through struggles? Wouldn't you like to know there's a God in heaven who forgives you? To be accountable and know he's merciful and gracious? And here you see in this passage, but he whom, verse 37, but he whom God raised up saw no corruption. And here is the central theme of the gospel itself. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things. So I love the word everyone and all. Don't you? Everyone who believes is justified from all all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He's speaking to a group of people that have done their best to live in a government of regulation. And I don't care how many laws you make, man will still break them. He'll still break them. That's how we're wired. There's no hope in in legalism. If legalism worked, the strictest governments in the world would be the most successful. And you're rejecting, I'm not saying you, but I'm saying rejecting a God of mercy, a God of forgiveness, a God of power, righteousness, and justice, and judgment, who gives you the forgiveness of your sins to get you right with him, so he's just and merciful, yes, And you're rejecting that for a government that oppresses you, that if you don't obey the rules, you die. I'll preach it, Bailey. And if I'm not doing a good job, the congregation can vote you in. (laughs) And so this, this is where we park for just a little bit. I got 28 minutes. This is the power of the gospel. Who can forgive you of your failure? Now, unforgiveness breeds resentment, doesn't it? So if I don't forgive you as a human being and you've wronged me, it can build resentment. But then the resentment now becomes your sin, doesn't it? 
Because you're, you're angry. And what does the anger of man do? It doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. We know that much. And so what happens when mankind doesn't forgive one another? It builds resentment. Resentment creates sinners. Sinners perpetrate that which was, you know, just, it, it's just a continual chaotic mess. It's a cancer. And it's self-driven. But a God who forgives then says to us, as I have forgiven you, what? So forgive one another. The weight of your sin is lifted and God commands you to go to the most wretched, vile sinner and speak of this God of forgiveness. This God of forgiveness who will justify you from all things. You know what justify means? It's real simple. I love love the definition. Just as if I'd never sinned. He casts our sin as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. And now we're justified, just as if I'd never sinned. And two things happen to a Christian. One is we're justified. God casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. Again, for those of you who are new, if he cast our sin as far as the north is from the south, let's look at a globe. You're on the north pole and you're traveling south. And when you hit the south pole, what direction are you now traveling? North. On a globe, if you go east, when do you reach west? Never. Amen? That's a good God. And how is it that he can justify us of our sin? Because he paid the penalty. He's just and merciful. But he took the penalty. It's free to us, but it cost him everything. That's pretty precious. And he justifies us of all things that could not be justified by the law. You see, if you're observing the law and you break one portion of the law, you can't reconcile that. And, and, and we even know in the Ten Commandments that there were laws punishable by death. And Jesus added to those in the, on, in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? He says, you've heard that it said that thou shalt not commit murder. That's, that's punishable by death, isn't it? Yes? Amen? Hello? He says, thou shalt not commit murder. But I say to you, if anyone says to his brother, Raka or fool, is in danger of the fires of hell. So I'm, I don't know about you, but I am guilty Has anyone in anger spoken something about someone else's character in this room? Could you please raise your hand? Come on now. Come on now. We're all guilty. And that is is a sin that the law will not justify us. We're not going to be cleansed of it just as if it never occurred. The penalty for it is death. Who's going to pay that? You? You're on death row. The wages of sin is death. There's no way out. And the beauty and the central theme of the word of God is that there's the forgiveness of God. When that is preached to them, every person in that room was like, well, come to think of it, I really need that. And the word justify, just as if I'd never sinned, is attached to sanctify. As we read in John 17, 17, when Jesus said, Lord, sanctify them. Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify is different than justify. Sanctify means set apart. Set apart. I've told you this story. I love it. My my dog, Tinkerbell, she's dead now, but we had a bowl for Tinkerbell that she ate from. It was a Winnie the Pooh plate. We'd put her food on that. She'd eat it. She'd eat it. She'd lick that thing so clean. It was ridiculous. My wife went on a women's retreat. I was left with the two girls and Daniel. 
I wasn't, I just, I struggled when Michelle's gone. The house was chaos. Dishes were piled up. We were running out of food. The laundry was piled up. I was, their clothes were inside out because it didn't smell as bad. The girls' hairdos were just hilarious. And Kelly just longed for mom to come home in some sort of order because Kelly's an orderly girl. And so she decides to make lunch like mama would make. And she makes the sandwiches and cuts them. And here she is, a little girl. And and she tries to find the cleanest plate she can. And she wants me to have the cleanest. And so we sit down for lunch. She calls us all in. I come in. The napkins are all folded like mama would do. And she's got my sandwich on Tinkerbell's plate because it was the cleanest plate in the house. Clean you know, according to the absence of anything on it, but microbiology would declare otherwise. And I said, I am not eating that. And she said, why, Daddy? And I thought, this is a great time to teach the children about sanctification. I said, Kelly, this Winnie the Pooh plate is sanctified, set apart for only Tinkerbell, not Daddy. <laughs> and so what is God doing when he saves you and he justifies you? He sets you apart for his purposes to do good works, go into all the world. Amen? Contend for the minds and the hearts of men. Paul says in verse 40, Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. And he quotes again from uh, the Old Testament in Habakkuk. He says, so when the Jews went out of the synagogue, and this is interesting. Remember when I said when you turn a light on in a barn at night, the rats scurry and the birds sing? When the gospel is preached, the good news that there is a God who is, who is a God of forgiveness and that we're accountable to him. He wants to justify and sanctify us, and his word is true, and we're accountable to it. And we do need to be forgiven, and you can't redefine the rules just because you want to be the God of your universe. And there are natural laws that bind all mankind, and we're going to reap what we sow, and we're experiencing that now in a world that is neglected and walked away from God and do what seems right in their own mind. At this point, the room will divide, and we're going to see the reaction to the gospel. Now pay attention because your family members are going to respond in one of the ways that will be listed in this text. And your coworkers and your friends and your neighbors and strangers you meet at the supermarket. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that, here we go again, this is the, the third time, these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. What were the words? Truth. The truth of the gospel. They begged them. They pleaded with them, please come back. This is touching me in a way I've never experienced. Uh, I joined Kiwanis. I met a man at the Kiwanis who is also um, an active participant in every city council meeting. He speaks at every city council meeting. I met him at Kiwanis. Um, I, I befriended him. He actually was um, on the campaign of my opponent in the council. Um, we, we struck up a friendship at the Kiwanis. He, um, he came to church. And he's come a number of times, and he, he came up to me and also Pastor Tony today at the Kiwanis meeting. He actually told me this on Sunday. He said, Rob, my whole life's changed. I gave my heart to the Lord in your service. And this is a man going through a divorce, and his life is in turmoil, and he just said, I, I never knew. Has this just been revolutionary what God's done? In the council meeting on Tuesday night, uh, there was a member there, uh, or a, 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 a constituent there, who's actually a Muslim who sits in our church on Sundays. And um, he comes, and he is, he's a Muslim, and he, he makes no bones about it. 
And he's at every council meeting and speaks at every council meeting, every single time. And he's, he's a neat guy, not super articulate in some respects, but brings up some good issues. And sometimes it's a little confusing. I don't, I'm not really sure what he's talking about. He's, he's, he's singled me out. And I don't talk a lot in the council meetings. He singled me out, and during his public comments, he always refers to me. And this last Tuesday, he referred to me. And what he did is he did an overhead, and he said, the good pastor, that's what he calls me, the good pastor gave me an acorn and spoke about the sanctity of life. And he said, this is a Muslim. There wasn't a single Christian that did this. This was a Muslim. He said, and I believe that because the mayor changed, we went from Mayor Adam to Mayor Price on Tuesday night. He said, I believe that the mayor should be sworn in and put their hand on the Holy Scriptures and be accountable to God. And the other thing is he recited the Lord's Prayer. He he jumbled it a little bit, but he recited the Lord's Prayer. And he said, I went to a Catholic school growing up as a Muslim, and I was afraid to recite the Lord's Prayer and fear that I'd become a Christian. And he's the one contending on my behalf in in the council meeting. And these things are sinking in. We're contending for the souls of man. Amen? Uh, so here's, here's the response. They beg that the words would continue and that they might be preached in the following Sabbath. Verse 43, Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews, devout proselytes, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So these, these devout proselytes, they're probably 24 hours you know, born again, uh, they're, they're, they're just little babies that have been born. They don't know a lot about the gospel other than what Paul just shared. And they're begging them. And Paul speaks to them. He persuades them to continue in the grace of God. Now, it's fascinating in relation to the grace of God because it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, as Paul would write in Ephesians. But he, he points this out. Paul says in uh, Hebrews 13, he says, Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines, For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. Paul would write in Galatians 1, he says, I marvel that you are soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Peter would write in 2 Peter 3, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. This is the power of Christianity. It's grace. It's grace. The gospel according to grace is the book of Romans, I believe. And, and, and it's, it's actually the entirety of the New Testament, but it's by grace we've been saved through faith. What is grace? Grace is the picture of justification. The acronym is grace, G, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is, mercy is, is mercy is not getting what you deserve. Right? I believe that that mercy is greater than grace. Because for God to look at you, Grant, and look at me, Rob, in our mess that we made of our lives, amen? And I can say that of all of us. God looks at us and he says, I'm going to have mercy on you. He said, but Lord, the sins I've committed are worthy of damnation. They're worthy of Death. Everything you laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, I've, I've committed. I think I did it today, a number of times. And God says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. 
Well, he's merciful, but he's also just. So for him to extend mercy, he's going to have to pay the penalty. Right? You owe a debt you'll never be able to pay. And God says, I'm going to pay that. I remember when I was a boy, I used to throw a ball against a wall at the Gillard's house on their garage, practicing my pitching for Little League. I'm throwing this thing against the wall, just throwing it against the wall. And the Gillards, they were rich. They had a big house on Flora Avenue right across from the beach. And we had this dumpy little house next to them. It was at Irving Gill that we had to work every day on. My dad made us, and I hated that house. But it was fun. It was close to the beach. I wish I had it today. Throwing this ball against the wall, and, you know, I'm trying to learn a curveball, and I throw it through their garage window. Shatter that thing. I run into the house, and I'm hiding. And my dad had just come back from, from Asia, um, hadn't seen him. He'd been on tour as a military officer. And there's a knock on the door. And this wealthy man comes to the door, my dad, you know, starving military officer, and answers and says, Mr. Gillard, how are you? Captain McCoy, good to see you. Actually, back then he's a commander. Commander McCoy, good to see you. He says, oh, what's the problem, Mr. Gillard? And he says, well, uh, your boy just threw a ball through the window. He said, yeah, I'm sorry about that. He said, look, I can fix it. I have the ability to fix it. But this is the third time that window's been broken. And nobody's going to learn a lesson if I keep repairing it. He says, so your boy needs to to fix it. My dad said, "Uh, Mr. Gillard, you're absolutely right. My boy needs to fix that window. He said, but he hadn't had the ability to do that. But we'll make sure it gets done, sir. He says, thank you, Commander. And he heads his way. My dad comes in and says to me, now you should break the window. I said, yeah, I broke the window. He says, uh, Mr. Gillard is making us pay for it. I said, us? I thought he said me, Dad. He said, he did, but you can't. So I will. Somebody's got to pay for that window. It's going to be me. I learned in a non-Christian home what grace is. Actually, what mercy is. Mercy is the idea that I'm not getting what I deserve. I'm supposed to pay for that window. I broke it. My dad paid the penalty. It cost him what I did wrong. You understand that? So out of that, grace comes. For my dad to extend mercy to me, instead of say, you're going to pay it, you're going to pay every dime of it, you're going to work your tail off. Instead, he gave me grace. But that grace cost him the penalty because he extended to me mercy. It was my dad's riches. It was, it was his riches at his expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. And so here you see what Paul is declaring. And these folks are so touched by it that Paul says, continue in the grace of God. You know what's beautiful about continuing in the grace of God? As Christians, your flesh is just as vile as a pagan's flesh. In me, Paul would say, in me, that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. Left to your own devices, walking away from the word of God, dishonoring God, you end up doing things that are just as bad as anyone else on the face of the earth. Hello? A couple of us agree. Some of you are going, well, I don't know about you, but I'm very special. And your pride is filthy. And how do you continue in grace? You keep a short account with God. Lord, I did it again. I know. Lord, would you forgive me? I already have. Lord, what do I have to do to pay you back? I've already paid it. 
You know what should elicit in our heart? Not like, yeah, I'm going to go do that again. Boom, I get away with it. That's so cool. He paid the penalty. Yeah, I'm going to go break the window again. And again and again and again. I love breaking windows. Dad, run up the debt. Let's do this. No, it should be gratitude. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Let me repeat that in a different way. It's his kindness that leads us to change. And he gives us the strength to change. We continue in the grace of God, and that's what he's saying to these new believers. The one thing you're going to need to know as a new believer is you continue in the grace of God because the enemy's going to tell you that you're unworthy and God wants nothing to do with you. You think God's going to forgive you for the thing you've done a thousand times? You think he's going to forgive you again? Are you kidding me? God wants nothing to do with God hates you. Nothing could be further from the truth. On the next Sabbath day, verse 44, I've got 11 minutes. On the next Sabbath day, almost the whole city came together to hear what? There we have another count of it. Almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Imagine a gospel declaring that you can be forgiven, that God is a God of forgiveness. Wow. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. You're screwing up our government. We own these people. We have a system of laws and we hold them in check and we can demand from them and, and, and we own them and we can hold it over their heads and you're screwing this up. And they were filled with envy. You're winning their hearts. You're winning their hearts by giving them a gospel of a God that forgives them. We have a God that condemns them, that they're this capricious and he owes us something and we're the recipients of that. You owe the government. You owe me. You owe those that, that, are, that are the elite. And yet, Paul declares it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's the gospel according to grace. And they're envious. They're filled with envy. And they began to contradict and blaspheme. And they oppose the things that Paul spoke of. And and you get that. And, And their arguments are so ridiculous. And you read them and you just feel like, I don't even want to respond. But you must. You must. Not for their sake, but for the people who are listening. Contend for their souls. Contend for their minds. Write the letter to the editor. Do what's necessary. Contend for the minds of man. Paul was there and he even said, I face persecution. I read that to you in 2 Timothy. He remembered that city. It was awful. And there he's contending for these new proselytes. He's contending for their their hearts and their minds. And he's fighting these folks that are blaspheming and contradicting and opposing the things that Paul spoke. And, and, and this is what it says in verse 46. Paul and Barnabas grew bold. I'm not going to allow you to corrupt their minds with this, this garbage. That's not true. 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 We're contending for truth. We stand for it. Even when it's unpopular. He says it was necessary that the word of God, which is true, that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. You know, and you've rejected it. You haven't rejected it. And, and, and Jesus would save that, that concept of a hypocrite. We think a hypocrite is someone who says one thing and does something else. That's not a hypocrite. That's not a hypocrite. And they call Christians hypocrites because we we call for this and we do this. Those are people that are trying and failing. That's what they are. A hypocrite is someone who knows the truth 
and deliberately steers people away from the truth for the sake of personal gain. That's why he called the Pharisees hypocrites. They knew this was true and they denied it. And they said, gravity doesn't exist. And you go, well, that doesn't, you want to go to jail? And he's contending for the truth. He says, I've set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified what? The word of the Lord. Nick Kidwai glorified the word of the Lord at a council meeting as a Muslim. And as many as been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. There it is again, the word of the Lord. But then again, here we have the same folks, and it'll always be this till the ends of the earth. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, and they raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. Paul wrote about it in 2 Timothy. It was an awful city, and he got beat up. You know why he stayed and why he worked and why he contended? It's for the hearts of the new believers. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. It does wonders for the church when the gospel has the power to change a community. You know what people are sick of in the church? It's a toothless lion. We talk about a salvation, but it doesn't change a community. We talk about salvation Sunday in and Sunday out. We watch thousands of people come to Christ. And, and we've watched this in the Calvary Chapel movement. 10,000% growth since 1966. And we watch as this entire state 1,500 churches exploding in, in California primarily, preaching the gospel verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, as we watch the state implode. And Christians, after 50 years, are looking at it going, What's, why is this lion toothless? Why are we the number one abortion provider in the country? Why aren't more people writing letters to the editor? Why did a Muslim have to say that in a Tuesday night meeting? Where are the Pauls and the Barnabases contending for the minds of the people? Where are they? And the secret is, you, you, don't, you don't strive for perfection of performance, but for perfection of a relationship with Jesus. You do this because you get to. It isn't I must do. It's Jesus has already done, and thus I will do what he asked me to do. I don't have to do it. I get to do it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I encounter distinction to all others. And as we see people react differently, I, I want to close in the last five minutes with just simply sharing this with you. Let me find it. Here it is. I want to read to you the definition of truth from Noah Webster written in 1828 in the Webster Dictionary. Good place to find the definition of truth, amen? This is 1828 in America, okay? Conformity to fact or reality, exact accordance with that which is or has been or shall be. The truth of history constitutes its whole value. We rely on the truth of the scriptural prophecies. My mouth shall speak truth, Proverbs 8. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth, John 17. And true state of facts or things. The duty of a court of justice is to discover the truth. 
Witnesses are sworn to declare the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. The truth of God in its veracity and faithfulness. Psalm uh, something, it's in Roman numerals. Or his revealed will, I have walked in thy truth. Psalm 26. Jesus Christ has called the truth. John 14. Notice that, and this is what one author writes, he says, notice that the authority of these definitions is to a large extent the Old and New Testament. And as you see this, it's fascinating, right? Now let me share with you what lawyers use today, and this is out of the Black's Dictionary, Law Dictionary, the sixth edition. There are three concepts, this is a definition of truth, there are three concepts as to what constitutes truth. Agreement of thought and reality, eventual verification, and consistency of thought with itself. Consistency. Gravity doesn't exist. Gravity doesn't exist. Gravity doesn't exist. Oh, you believe? Oh, gravity doesn't exist. There's consistency here. We, 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 we weren't made by God. We, we just happened. We just keep repeating, and it becomes truth. I like what this author writes about Black's Law Dictionary. He says, the last of these alleged concepts is the most revealing concerning the perversion and the meaning of the words by those in the courts today. Consistency of thought with itself. Let's see. By this definition, if one says the same thing consistently, it must be the truth. Or if two or more individuals say the same thing, it must be the truth. How many times have you heard someone in government or elsewhere say, that is your truth? Now, this statement by many attorneys and judges makes sense. Anything you wish to be truth, simply say it often enough to get others to say it. No wonder there is no such thing as perjury today. Or as we are often told, perjury is nearly impossible to prove today. I want to ask you a question. What happened between 1828 and 1963 and the definition of truth? Did Christians write Black's Law? Noah Webster was a believer. We abdicated our involvement. We don't contend for the hearts of men. Paul did in in, in Antioch and Pisidia. But we need to. Every day we contend for that. We think, what's the point of involving in a school board? Do you realize you're contending for the truths of minds of the children? Oh, but I'm going to get beat up and face persecution. You bet you will. So do it. Right? Last minute. 1786, Dr. Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Declaration of Independence and the Treasurer of the U.S. Mint, wrote, Thoughts upon the mode of education proper in a republic. I beg leave to remark that the only foundation for useful education in a republic is to be laid upon the foundation of religion. Without this, there can be no virtue, and without virtue, there can be no liberty, and liberty is the object and life of all republican governments. Such is my veneration for every religion that reveals the attributes of a, of a deity or a future state of rewards and punishments. But the religion I mean to recommend in this place is that of the New Testament. It is not my purpose to hint at the arguments which establish the truth of the Christian revelation. My only business is to declare that all its doctrines and precepts are calculated to promote the happiness of society and the safety and well-being of civil government. A Christian cannot fail of being in a republic, for every precept of the gospel inculcates these degrees of humility, self-denial, brotherly kindness, which are directly opposed to the pride of monarchy or despotism or authoritarianism. 
A Christian cannot fail of being useful to the republic, for his religion teaches him that no man liveth to himself. And lastly, a Christian cannot fail of being wholly inoffensive, for his religion teaches him in all things to do to others what he would wish in like circumstances they should do to him. You know, he was the first one who established our system of education in America. Where are the Benjamin Rushes today? Right here in our congregation. You may not change the state or the nation, but you can change Thousand Oaks. Fight for the narrative. Write the letters. Think of ways to contend for the minds of the people in our community, as Paul did in Antioch and Pisidia. Amen?